It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The administration has no plausible explanation for why they didn't shoot this balloon down over Alaska. You shoot it down off the coast of South Carolina, you sure as hell can shoot it down off the coast of my state. The water deaths offshore, the Aleutians, about 150 feet to over 18,000 feet. We don't know. That scares the hell out of me. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. We filed uh, in the House floor an expulsion of uh, George Santos. I know George Santos hoped to deliver tonight's keynote, but organizers wanted someone who could tell a joke, but not actually be one. (laughs) Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Senators are briefed on the balloon as the Biden administration reveals it was part of a military spy program that spanned over 40 countries. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the spy balloon story reaches new heights and new information today on Capitol Hill. We'll talk about it with Dennis Wilder of Georgetown University, former China director on the National Security Council. Some major Republican donors are going cold on Donald Trump. We'll name names with Bloomberg's Laura Davison, who helped to write the story. And George Santos's colleagues in the House turn up the heat, filing an expulsion resolution today. It just keeps coming. We'll have more on all these stories with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shansano and Rick Davis. They're here for the hour. Lawmakers received classified briefings today on the Chinese spy balloon as the House cleared a resolution aimed at condemning China for violating U.S. airspace last week. The yeas are 419, the nays are zero. Two-thirds being in the affirmative, the rules are suspended, the resolution is agreed to. All right, pretty convincing margin. While next door, senators talked out after receiving classified briefings on the matter. Not all of them convinced your Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. The Pentagon needs better lawyers because... If you shoot it down off the coast of South Carolina, you sure as hell can shoot it down off the coast of my state. Again, he's talking about his own state here. And Senator Chris Murphy, uh, a Democrat from Connecticut, he got the very same briefing and sees things very differently. Maybe some people don't think it's valuable to collect the intelligence. Um, uh, I do. Uh, I think it uh, made sense for us to learn something about this balloon, given that it really posed no threat to the United States. Meantime, the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Defense lined up a bunch of Pentagon officials today to learn more. Among them, uh, Melissa Dalton, Defense Assistant Secretary for Homeland Defense and Hemispheric Affairs. It's quite a business card. Explaining why shooting this thing down off the Aleutian Islands or off the coast of Alaska would have come with its own major challenges. The water deaths offshore, the Aleutians, um, at six-plus nautical miles go very quickly from about 150 feet to over 18,000 feet near mm. the, the Bering Sea. 
The winter water temperatures in the Bering Sea hover consistently in the low 30s, which would make recovery and salvage operations very dangerous. Very dangerous, as they are now working in roughly 50 feet of much warmer water off the coast of South Carolina. But that still doesn't answer the question about what they learned about us while this balloon was slowly tracking its way across the country. We have learned a couple of new things today. The balloon was capable of collecting communication signals and the Biden administration says was part of a military-led spy program that spanned more than 40 countries. New evidence presented here in a State Department fact sheet on the balloon's capabilities and in the hearings that I'm mentioning here today on Capitol Hill. The administration offering rarely disclosed details, as I read also on the terminal. You can find all this on the Bloomberg, including that high-resolution imagery provided by U-2 spy planes flying past the balloon revealed an array of surveillance equipment. There's more. The, the balloon, this same balloon, had components with English language writing on them. Members of Congress learned this today as well. As Biden, uh, Biden administration officials, easy for me to say, brief lawmakers, behind closed doors. There's still much more that we likely have not heard. And this is where we begin our conversation on Bloomberg Sound On with Dennis Wilder, research fellow for the Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue on Global Issues of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. He served as the National Security Council's director for China in 2004-2005. He's with us right now. Dennis, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you may not be surprised, maybe you are, to learn that this is a lot more than one or three or four, that this is a long-running military-sponsored spy program that included dozens of countries. How concerned are you? Well, first of all, uh, there's no surprise that this was a military operation. That was clear pretty fast, given the way the uh, balloon operated over states like Montana and over very sensitive installations. Mm -hmm. I think I am surprised at the scale of the Chinese uh, balloon program. It's kind of taking an old technology and updating it uh, very few countries uh, think about doing things this way. Most of us rely on satellites in space to do this kind of collection. So it is it is an unusual program. And it's a worrisome program because those balloons can be armed as well. Yes. So uh, we really need to think about uh, how we create better air defenses. And some of the senators today were asking that very question. They what sure do we were. Need? Yeah. Uh, Senator John Tester among them, he's uh, he chairs that Senate Appropriations Subcommittee I mentioned. They had four officials from the Pentagon, and he's, he's speaking to Melissa Dalton again here. And now remember, he's from Montana. He wants to know why the hell this balloon was hanging over his state, but also why did we not shoot it down before it violated U.S. airspace? And why didn't we ever shoot them down before if we know that this had been a recurring event? Listen to this back and forth. Either this is no big deal in the military's eyes and I don't think you're going to say that, um, or there's not a consistent plan on how to deal with them. Senator, Talk to me. Senator, thank you for the question. If, if I may, just to build upon what, what Jed was saying, um, the PRC government surveillance balloons have transited the continental U United States briefly at least three times during the prior right. administration. And, and so the one, question is, is why, didn't we, why, didn't we, why didn't we shoot them down over water then? The the duration of this particular balloon was was much longer, right. um, and the information that we have since gleaned about the balloons that have transited globally um, was 
only recently discovered. So, Dennis, when you look back on this, we had sure. no idea this was going on this whole time. We had Mark Esper, the former defense secretary, on uh, just a couple of days ago reacting to this. He said he'd like to have a briefing. He, nobody ever came into his office to tell them that this was happening. How could we suddenly know so much about it? Well, I think, uh, frankly, the Pentagon and NORAD, our North American Air Defense System, were asleep at the switch. You know, there are a lot of balloons that fly in the air, and um, I think people just assume these were more of the regular balloons. And until recently, when they started to get suspicious of balloons over Taiwan Mm. and other areas, and they started really looking hard at this, then they went back through their databases, and lo and behold, they found these other missions that they had not detected at the time. So this is a real failure, um, and it's got to be corrected. Yeah. My God, absolutely. I yeah. mean, I'm afraid to to hear what they learned behind closed doors, Dennis. Most everything I've talked about so far is is in the public domain. Right. Well, I think uh, one of the big things, uh, and Bloomberg was the first, I think, to put this on the street today, is that there is indications that there are probably American components Yes. Uh, probably dual use items uh, sent to China uh, for private companies that have ended up in this program. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because they've been doing it with their stealth fighter, their stealth ships, their hypersonic missiles. Uh, we have been uh, aiding and abetting the Chinese program unknowingly for a long time. Well, that's a pretty big deal uh, here. And I did mention that earlier because it really illustrates why the Biden administration is now trying to keep high-tech components out of the hands of China. When they tell a company like NVIDIA, you can't do business there, or they tell a company like right. Huawei, you can't buy stuff from us anymore. We're seeing now in exactly. real time why that's happening. Right. We, we've woken up to the fact that, um, you know, our industries, which want to sell to private corporations, there's no such thing as private corporations anymore in China. Um, The party has control, and a private company that buys something from the United States can be easily pressured into giving it over to the military. So we're going to have to be a lot more careful in the future. Boy, is that right. Uh, You served as the CIA's Deputy Assistant Director for East Asia and the Pacific 2015-2016. Is it true that the CIA had to make a wake-up call to NORAD on this? Would we know about this if it were not for the agency? Um, I haven't seen that reported yet. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if (laughs) the agency picked up some classified uh, clandestine tip-offs and uh, handed them over to the Pentagon, but I I can't confirm that. You've got a pretty long resume, in fact, Dennis. You also were senior editor of the President's Daily Brief from 2009 to 2015. The idea that (laughs) I can't even imagine it. And by the way, we should be talking to you about uh, having uh, certain classification uh, security clearances with a whole different story. But we'll get there. Uh, Dennis, as far as this is concerned, we, we, we understand that President Biden was first briefed about it the Tuesday before this was shot down. What's the evolution uh, in a story like this and how it makes its way into the president's daily brief? The CIA, the Pentagon knew about this arguably hours, maybe days earlier. What leads to the decision to say, all right, let's put this in the briefing today? He needs to know. Well, uh, it was my job every day to sort through everything that the Pentagon and others 
we're uh, putting out and putting out alerts and decide kind of what level of threat rose to the level that the president should really look at it. And again, I think uh, the Pentagon was very late to figuring out that this was indeed a threatening mission. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it was only, as you talked about, when that U-2 flight went over and saw that huge solar array <laughs> and all of those components that they suddenly realized they had a problem on their hands. Good and it's Lord. probably at that moment when people decided they'd better alert the president. Let me ask you, Dennis, uh, Corrine Jean-Pierre on Air Force One today, the president on his way to Tampa, mm-hmm. brief reporters mm-hmm. on this, and they're maintaining the line like, hey, you know, we put Beijing on watch. Listen to how she put it. We, the United States, sent a, cl- a clear message to the PRC that it's a violation of our sovereign sovereignty was unacceptable by shooting down the balloon, protecting our own sensitive intelligence and maximizing our ability to track the balloon and recover the pay- payload. Dennis Wilder, what? Through our actions, what message did we really send to Beijing? Well, one of the messages, unfortunately, that we sent was that we weren't on top of our game and that they had a stealth capability that we weren't detecting. Um, I think with the shoot down and with confronting them with whatever technology is on board, um, we will, of course, make a statement to the Chinese But um, unless when Tony Blinken goes to Beijing and others meet with the Chinese, that they get an ironclad assurance that this program ends and it ends right now, um, I'm not sure that this program is going to end. So we need uh, maybe not publicly, but at least privately, some real assurances from the Chinese that uh, this is the end of this kind of uh, program. When you were uh, senior editor of the President's Daily Brief, did that thing end up in a burn, burn bag at the end of every day? I'm just dying to know. I was reading about this process uh, recently. I'm sure you didn't bring one home with you or give it to the dog for that matter. But does it end up in a burn bag? Is that the proper treatment on a daily basis? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, most of the customers who read the President's Daily Brief, and it's only brief to a few people, you don't even leave it with them. It's so yeah. sensitive that they read it and then they hand it back to you. And you take it back to CIA headquarters. Uh, So it's highly unusual that something is left uh, in the hands of the reader because it's just too sensitive. You need to come back and talk to us, Dennis. Great to have you. Dennis Wilder. Okay, great. The Initiative for U.S.-China Dialogue on Global Issues of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Let's assemble the panel. Rick and Jeannie, of course, are with us. I'm glad to say Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Some pretty scary stuff that we learned over the past 24 hours here today, Rick, and I'm sure that lawmakers learned a lot more than we did. When you hear uh, what we are hearing about English language components on this balloon, it's the first thing that you take away from that. Yeah, I thought uh, David did a good job of describing that. And you have components that are dual use, things that work in the military, but also work in civilian life. And and, and certainly, you know, uh, semiconductor chips and things like that are exactly what, what fit into that category. And so it's one of the reasons why the Biden administration started putting limits on certain kinds of chips going to China, uh, because they could not certify uh, that they weren't falling into the hands of the military and the intelligence organizations. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear that. Uh, mm. 
I think everyone's going to use that as a political tool mm -hmm. uh, to shout and scream and say, oh, my God, there's spying going on. <laughs> and uh, they're using our own equipment to do it to us. Right. Um, and so I think you can only anticipate more moves by Congress to put pressure on the Biden administration to crack down on China. And if that's through trade sanctions or other mechanisms of limiting the kind of technology that leaves the U.S. US bound for China, then I think that's, that's going to just add to this kind of firefight going on over this issue. No one seems surprised either, Jeannie, that this is a military-sponsored uh, program. Uh, with, with what we've learned here, where are you on the decision made to shoot this down after it crossed the country? You heard from Chris Murphy. You also heard from Dan Sullivan, who said, hey, shoot this sucker down over my state of Alaska anytime you want. But also Melissa Dalton describing how difficult it would have been to recover anything if we made that decision to shoot it down off the Aleutians. Maybe there is no right answer to this. What's, what's your gut tell you? You know, what I feel like is more confused than ever. I am huh. tracking all day. We've had at least, by my count, five explanations. At one point, it was we didn't know if we could because we didn't even know if it was a security apparatus, if it was part of the U.S. military. Then it was because it would be dangerous over civilian populations with the debris. Then it was because it may escalate tensions. Then a recovery <laughs> problem. And there's one more, Joe. I'm sorry to keep going on. No. The other one was they were collecting intelligence from it. Well, there's five. Oh, there and I, I just simple me. I'm sure there's more. There's got to be more clarity on this thing. It's confounding. I think a lot of Americans feel just like Senator John Tester today. Talk to me, because none of this is adding up. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 5 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I suppose it's good that Donald Trump has a lot of his own money, right? At least that's what he says. He just doesn't tend to use it on his own campaign. And so this becomes a problem. Republican donors sour on Trump, I read on the terminal, seek to choke off 24 bid. Great piece of work uh, by our colleagues here at Bloomberg, including Laura Davison, who's going to be with us in a second. Key Republicans trying to choke off momentum. They write that Trump can build for a third White House campaign. Two in recent days, two of the most prominent conservative donor groups, the network founded by billionaire Charles Koch and his late brother David, as well as the Anti-Tax Club for Growth. They're looking for somebody else, and that means a lot of money. And Laura joins us now on the program. Laura Davison. 
Bloomberg Congress reporter, it's great to have you uh, with us here, Laura. How much of a problem is this for Donald Trump? It, it, was he getting lots of small dollar donations or is this the real juice for the campaign? This has the potential to be a really big problem for Trump. He is noted for his small dollar donations and amassing uh, a massive war chest um, in the past through that. But so far this year, he's not been able to do that. He's raised just you know less than $10 million. Um, he hasn't had a lot of momentum behind him. Part of that is just we are super early in the campaign stage. But it's also because Facebook advertising is way less lucrative than it used to be because of some changes um, on Facebook side. So not having some of these big donors, you know, the Adelsons, the Mercer family, the Koch network behind yeah. him, and also having them vocally say, uh, we're not supporting Trump, we want a different guy, will be very influential throughout the donor class, uh, both among big donors and could also spill over to small donors as they start to see other candidates get some big funding and momentum behind them. The loss of Shelley Adelson alone is huge, is it not? Yeah, Miriam Adelson, so she and her late husband donated $90 million to Trump's campaign in, wow. in 2020. One of the biggest donors, you know, and they're, you know, in terms of Republican donors, more than $200 million um, in total in 2020. So that's a big chunk of change. And if they decide to get behind someone else, that could pose a problem to, to, uh, to Trump. So we're talking about millions of dollars up for grabs here. They're not indicating uh, by by putting money down. I realize that you know we don't have a lot of official campaigns. We only have one still. Uh, Nikki Haley shows up. Maybe later we get someone like Asa Hutchinson who was with us last evening. Maybe it's Ron DeSantis. But do they keep their powder dry until then? What we're hearing from a lot of particularly these big donors is that they want to see how the primary goes. They want to mm-hmm. see which candidates uh, come to the top. There could be, you know, as many as 12 or 15 candidates who decide to throw their name into the hat. And some of these big donors, and we're also seeing this on Capitol Hill, members too, aren't getting out in front and saying that there's a specific person they want to be. They want to give it a little bit of time before they really, uh, you know, start investing in, in one specific person. Wow. So this kind of explains, too, why Donald Trump's been dinging Ron DeSantis on social media on an almost daily basis lately, doesn't it? Yes, this really, uh, you know, we can kind of see what Trump is thinking about the field based on who he's criticizing and also who he's not criticizing. Nikki Haley, for example, he, uh, you know, wasn't harsh on her at all. You know, she's going to be the next one to to get into the race here uh, next week. Uh, So that kind of tells you that, that Trump doesn't see her as much of a threat. Or does he see her as a potential running mate? That's also possible, too. I mean, the joke right now, um, you know, for a lot of these candidates is, you know, that they're entering the race uh, to be vice president. Uh, That's certainly possible. But when you look at polling, DeSantis uh, polls really strongly right now. We'll see if he can keep that up. Uh, But, you know, DeSantis uh, clearly is someone that Trump has his sights on as being a a potential uh, kind of, you know, his main competitor in this race. Laura, thank you. As over, Laura Davison uh, with the headline Republican donors sour on Trump here from the panel on this. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis uh, make up our panel Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Rick, the Republican apparatus here, the the campaign fundraising apparatus is kind of on ice, I guess, until we start filling this stage. What, what, is, what does this development tell you about Donald Trump, though? Yeah, look, I mean, it, it shows that a huge swath of the, quote, establishment Republican Party that uh, donors that supported him, in both 16 and 20 uh, for his presidential bid uh, are either sitting out completely like uh, Miriam Adelson um, uh, and or supporting somebody else, which actually means even worse, right? Because that that money then is used against you. Um, But I think what you look to and, and, and what I look at too is not only is he getting pinched on the income side, but he's spending an enormous amount of expenses that aren't 
really compatible with the income. I mean, he's used to, you know, raising and spending a billion dollars in his last campaign for president. And, you know, he transferred a bunch of money, um, $20 million out of his Save America PAC, you know, to his uh, Trump, you know, uh, aligned super PAC to help candidates in the last term. Uh, We see how little he got out of that. Um, two candidates like, you know, uh, uh, Kerry Lake, who lost, and others. Um, so he didn't get a really bang for his buck on that. And, and he spent almost $10 million out of his packs on legal expenses just to keep himself out of jail. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and nobody looks at those and says, wow, these are really great for our chances of becoming the nominee of the party. And so the question is, you know, what's he going to do with all this spending? A um, million dollars in this latest report just on, you know, like properties he owns in New York, uh, half a million dollars almost uh, uh, at Trump Tower where there was no political activity going on. It wasn't like there were events there. <laughs> they don't have any offices there. You know, what do you spend that money on? Is he keeping his rent up or something? So Polish that escalator. So I, I think that there could be a real reckoning for, for Trump. He's going to have to figure out how to tighten his belt. And, and we're, we're going to see whether or not that's something he wants to t- try to do. So it's another DeSantis rising kind of story here, Jeannie. And boy, they've been going at it lately. I, I don't know if you've been watching the Truth Social for us here, but even on Twitter, a lot of this is being reposted. Uh, now suggesting going actually out of his way with a photograph to suggest that Ron DeSantis is a pedophile. Uh <laughs> We got a lot of this race left, so just imagine where this could go. But Ron DeSantis actually poked him back. Listen. I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. Okay. Round of applause. You got to get to the punchline here, though, right? I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. Oh. Where's this going, then, Jeannie? Yeah, and, and we have only just begun. This is about the third attack he's made on DeSantis, beholden to the deep state, beholden to special interests. Now he is a pedophile. And yes, Joe Matthew, of course, I've been watching Truth Social. This story goes back 20 years. New York Times reported it last year. He worked at a high school for a year when he was young, apparently was caught at a party, not caught, was at a party with people yeah. who had graduated. There was no evidence that he had done anything or certainly wasn't anything close to a pedophile. But, you know, what I hear there, Ron DeSantis saying is he's going to stay above the fray. And this is the problem Republicans have. This is eight, 10 years of hoping magically that Donald Trump will go away. (laughs) He simply doesn't seem to go away. And so I think it's a very important sign that you see Americans for Prosperity. You see Miriam Adelson and others saying they're going to put their money behind it. That's an important sign. But the question is, if Donald Trump starts to win some primaries, and he very well could, are they then going to turn back and either stay out of it and let him run his course mm-hmm. or support him? And this is something we've seen in the past. So there is an awfully long way to go. And he is doing what he always does, picking off these rivals, waiting, seeing yep. if he can take them down one at a time. And DeSantis is on the top of his list. And he has said certain things about Nikki Haley, which leads you to believe when she gets in mm-hmm. next week, it's he will up. go after her more strongly, very anti-female, anti-women in power approach he's taken with her. Rick, DeSantis and Trump, they're like they're like a couple of fighters circling each other in the ring here, right? They're sizing each other up. Nobody's really landed a punch yet. But if you're Ron DeSantis, if you're preparing Ron DeSantis to get into this race, does he have to beat Donald Trump on the debate stage to move forward? 
Gosh, if I were preparing Ron DeSantis, I would tell him never get on a debate stage with Donald Trump uh, because <laughs> How do you it's do just that? it's just wackyville, right? I mean, it, nice. it, nobody has ever been able to prove um, that being on a debate stage with Donald Trump pays off in the end, right? He just makes stuff up. He he says incredibly irreverent things. Uh, there is no rule in advance that you can set that he's going to abide by. Mm. And and so, um, you know, I, I really don't think it's actually inappropriate for Republican candidates to tell debate organizers that they don't want to get on a stage with Donald Trump because they can't impose any rules on him that they're going to impose on the other candidates. I mean, he'll he'll play by the rules. Uh, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, she'll play by the rules. Uh, Donald Trump, right. zero chance that that's going to happen. So we're back in a world where it's not the moderator you need to worry about. It's that other guy at the end of the stage. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It was the first meeting of the House Select Subcommittee exploring the weaponization of the U.S. government against Republicans. This is a subcommittee of the judiciary, and the White House was out ahead of this conversation today because this was the first sort of big break in the investigation. I don't say break, but the first big hearing or conversation in the Hunter Biden laptop uh, conversation. The White House out with a statement, spokesman Ian Sams, in a memo obtained by Bloomberg, making the comparison to McCarthyism. Jim Jordan launching the Fox News reboot. It It reads of the House Un-American Activities Committee with a political stunt that weaponizes Congress to carry out the priorities of extreme MAGA Republicans. The chair uh, would not agree, nor would Ron Johnson. He was talking really, Senator from Wisconsin, about the Hunter Biden laptop. Prior to the impeachment proceedings, Hunter Biden's obvious conflicts of interest in Ukraine became public. And Senator Grassley and I began investigating. We didn't target Joe and Hunter Biden. Their actions demanded it. Senator Johnson among the witnesses today that also included Representative, former Representative Tulsi Gabbard for Hawaii. And Chuck Grassley, the senator from Iowa. Jamie Raskin, the ranking member of the Democrat on the panel, his whole job, of course, is to push back on Jim Jordan. Dear colleagues, your subcommittee could conceivably become part of a proud history of serious bipartisan oversight stretching from the Teapot Dome investigation to the Boeing investigation to the Watergate hearings to the tobacco hearings to the select committee on the January 6th attack. Or it could take oversight down a very dark alley filled with conspiracy theories and disinformation, a place where facts are the enemy and partisan destruction is the overriding goal. So we're going down a dark alley here. Let's assemble our panel once again. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Jeannie, House Republicans have been promising to get into the what they like to refer to as the Biden crime family. Uh, they're demanding the president's son, Hunter, and brother turn over banking, travel, and other documents and communications. What are we in for here, speaking of dark tunnels? 
you know, we would hope we would be able to get some facts because if we got facts and it spoke to the fact that big tech, whether it's Twitter or the, if there was, you know, some kind of politicization of the FBI or DOJ, that we could get those facts on the ground and Congress could use its oversight to begin to talk about serious regulation. But when the focus is all on, you know, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, yeah. that's not the track we're going down. And that's been the problem, whether you're talking about James Comer or you're talking about Jim Jordan, who has been, you know, pushing this narrative for a long time. The reality is you can't hide behind the idea of whistleblowers and, you know, who have not been, you know, at, at least we have no evidence of what they've said. You've got to bring out the facts. And the problem, as you just look at the Twitter case, for instance, is that we've seen it go both ways. We saw Twitter do things that were unfair to conservatives. Certainly the New York Post story should not have been suppressed, and they acknowledge that 24 hours later. But they did the same thing on the Democratic side when it spoke to President Trump tweeting, and then they decided to change the rules. So, you know, they've got to look at the, both sides. They've got to get the facts out. And the problem is that's not where we are pushing forward to. And Democrats, unlike Republicans for January 6, are staying on the committee, and they are going to make their case. And so it's going to be harder for Republicans to push this narrative unless they have facts to support it. Rick, we knew these investigations were coming. They were promised uh, by the incoming House majority. So here we are. This subcommittee uh, in this hearing today examining, quote, politicization of the FBI and DOJ and attacks on American civil liberties. Is the White House going too far to compare that to McCarthyism? You know, look, I mean, I. I don't know why the White House is even engaging on this, right? There's going to be no solution to this. This there's they're working toward a committee report by January of 2025. I mean, we've got two full years of this committee doing their work, and if the if the Biden White House spends time sending out press releases every time these guys have a meeting, they're going to they're going to they're going to turn the White House into you know, just a press release machine. They're not going to have any time for anything else. And and so let, let the grievance committee be the grievance committee and leave it to the Democrats on the committee who actually are going to have a field day with this, right? Because, you know, everybody they put up there, they get a shot at asking them questions and they can try and debunk some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really think that they're making too much of this. Uh, you give it credence when the president and the White House put out releases uh, attacking them. You're elevating them. And uh, I, I know that's always been a big issue in politics is, you know, do you really respond to any of this kind of noise because you're just elevating it into the mainstream? And right now, without the White House's involvement, we wouldn't really be having much to talk about today. Speaking of grievances, this, uh, I guess, was inevitable as a couple of lawmakers, including Congressman Robert Garcia, Democrat from California, Offer a resolution calling for the expulsion of you-know-who, Congressman George Santos of New York. Just a few minutes ago, uh, we filed uh, in the House floor an expulsion of uh, George Santos, of Congressman Santos. Um, it's really important for us to recognize that George Santos is uh, a fraud, a liar. He has lied about the most horrific shooting in the in LGBTQ modern history, the Pulse nightclub shooting. He's lied about 9-11. He's lied about the Holocaust. He's lied about his education. He's lied about his career. Okay, uh, you may agree with all of that, Jeannie, but is this just yet another exercise in futility, another action by Congress that leads to nothing? There's been a long list of them lately. Yeah, it absolutely is. This resolution is going nowhere. They have admitted it. They are going to try to push this as it is a messaging push. And, you know, it, it's going to lie flat unless Republicans 
you know, bring this to the forefront. And, you know, it sort of ties in with what Rick was just talking about, about the White House. This is the Democrats' attempt, whether the White House in this case or the, uh, the, the Democrats in the case of George Santos, to keep highlighting extremism and bad behavior on the Republican side because they believe that's politically going to suit their wishes in 2024. So we're going to see a lot more of this on both sides. Is this an ad hoc effort, kind of, you know, different lawmakers do things spontaneously, Rick, or have, have, the, have the Democrats actually laid out a plan where each office gets kind of a, a different piece of this? You put up the resolution to expul- for expulsion. You know, we're going to have you meet him in the hall and say, Mitt Romney, you get him in the, in the aisle. Not that that's Democratic, but I just wonder how organized any of this effort is when you've got a, a California congressman trying to expel somebody from New York. Yeah, no, I don't think this is a master strategy plan by the minority leader in the House to mm. to oust George Santos because George Santos is a gift that just keeps <laughs> on giving to the Democratic Party. I mean, they he should be the last guy in the Republican coalition that they want to have ousted because, you know, he is an argument every day for why there's not enough, you know, uh, discipline and ethics within the Republican GOP caucus in the House of Representatives. I mean, he's sitting on committees. He gets to go to the State of the Union. I mean, <laughs> he, he and then he makes an issue every time the guy walks out of his door, even when he's walking into his door. I mean, he's, he, he's delivering the wrong kind of donuts to the press shop. So so at the end of the day, the I mean, like, sin. sure, these are these are things Democrats will do to get a press release that day. And we're going to talk about it. And other reporters are going to write stories about it. But the, at, at the end of the day. George Santos is actually working for the Democratic Party because he's making Republicans look horrible every day. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg Sound On. We talk a lot about the controversy in Washington here on this program. It's something different every day. Lawmakers not getting along. Partisanship gripping the Capitol. Government in dysfunction, right? That's the storyline. But unless you're actually here inside the bubble, you may not realize that Washington can have a sense of humor. Sometimes the jokes are pretty bad, but that doesn't always matter. As we learned at last night's Washington Press Club Foundation dinner, it was at the old Trump Hotel. It's not Trump anymore. And featured the comedy stylings of 
Representatives Hakeem Jeffries and Nancy Mace, Senators Chuck Schumer and Raphael Warnock. Let me just help you out in case you stumble once again into a black church. I'll give you a little bit of advice for free. We stay there a little while. We're a little bit more animated. And here's something that's very important to know. We don't clap on the one and the three. We clap on the two and the four. I'm not pointing anybody out, but somebody tell the president. I'm the first Jewish majority leader. But I am not just Jew-ish. Like some other New Yorkers in Congress. I'm Jewish. I'm the real thing, baby. Baruch Hashem. I know George Santos hoped to deliver tonight's keynote, but organizers our lovely, beautiful organizers wanted someone who could tell a joke, but not actually be one. <laughs> Come on, George, you've given Republicans a bad name, and that's Lauren Boebert's job. <laughs> Just kidding, Lauren, don't shoot. If you like my remarks, my name is Raphael Warnock. If you didn't, I'm Senator Tim Scott. Good night, everybody. That's the stuff you don't see on the nightly news, you know? And my God, that means it's almost prom season here in Washington, D.C. Final thoughts from our panel, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Rick, you've spent a career around politicians. They are some of the funniest people you can meet. Yes, they are. Uh, They work hard at it. Uh, And they're not only funny, but they can be the butt of the joke, too. So, uh, you know, they take it from both sides pretty well. And uh, I'm I'm really proud of guys who can do uh, comedy well because it's not a prerequisite in politics, but the ones who have it, you know, can kill it. And, 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 you know, certainly my old boss, John McCain, was one of the funniest (laughs) people I've ever met. I 100%. Jeannie, it's really interesting how, you know, it's just human nature, I guess. The ability to make somebody laugh will help you get further in life. And that includes politics. That's absolutely right. And could we give a shout out to Nancy Mace? She had some of the funniest <laughs> lines last pretty, night. Pretty cutting stuff. And by the way, Marjorie yeah. Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert was not there, but Marjorie Taylor Greene was. And she had a lot of zingers for the congresswoman from Georgia. That's right. And, and you know, I I thought they were both. I thought I thought Nancy Mace was hysterical. But, you know, I, I do agree with you when they have a chance to make other people laugh at their, you know, looking at themselves and not taking it all so seriously, at least if it's off the House floor, it's a good thing. I have to ask you quickly, Rick, in our remaining moment, Nancy Mace showed up on Bill Maher a couple of weeks ago. The comedy routine now, she's really trying to break herself away from the Republican brand and create one of her own. What's how's this end for her? Well, look, I think, you know, she's carving out a space for her in the Republican Party, and she's from a great district on the coast in South Carolina where yeah. they appreciate this kind of uh, laissez-faire government, and, and I think that uh, it fits her personality. I mean, you know, she's been a big proponent of uh, more uh, moderate causes within the party. That's right. Uh, interesting, and someone to watch as we enter the election cycle Great talk, Rick and Jeannie. Best part of my day, the fastest hour in politics. Again, subscribe to the podcast. Search for Bloomberg Sound On, and we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.